Throughout this past year at Fellowship of Faith, we've been spending a lot of time in this, this incredible story told by an early follower of Jesus named Mark. And in his gospel, he's really kind of bringing forward the sense that what's going on is more than just random miracles and random teachings and random appearances of Jesus, but instead something greater, something more intentional and something plan that, that what we're witnessing in Jesus is nothing short of an invasion of the kingdom of God here into this world, coming into a place that's filled with suffering and oppression and hurt and brokenness and bringing the goodness and life and mercy and justice and power of God to liberate and renew and redeem and restore. It's a story that has echoed since the time it was written. It's a story that I think each of us yearn for in our heart. And it's a story that I want to take a snapshot of today. Now, the kingdom of God is the central message of the Bible. It is the central idea behind Jesus' teaching, and it is nothing short of the hope of the world. And for so much of our journey through Mark, we've been talking about how the kingdom of God is here, it's upon us, it's now. But Jesus has another way of speaking of this kingdom as well, something that's future, an aspect of it that's yet to come, so that while the kingdom might be here in some sense already, it isn't yet here completely. And I want to show you this completely weird, bizarre, strange chapter out of Mark, which is a long teaching by Jesus that seems to hit on this and through it, give a window not only into the hope that we have, but what it means to be a follower of Jesus today. Now, here's the way I'd like to do this today. I'd kind of like to do this a little bit more Bible study style, where I'm going to invite you right now, find a Bible somewhere in your house. If you don't have a Bible easily accessible, on another phone or a laptop or whatever you have, just go to, some, uh, to a site like BibleGateway.com and type in Mark 13, because that's where we're going to the search bar. If you don't have this app on your phone already, I encourage you to download it immediately. It's the YouVersion app of the Bible. You can get it through Apple, you can get it on Google. Go to YouVersion Bible and a free app will pop up and it's just one of these phenomenal tools that puts hundreds of translations and Bible studies and devotionals and, and, and everything else at your fingertips. And good news, it's absolutely free. But I want you to get that and open up to Mark 13 with me. And what I'm going to do in this time together is walk you through what Jesus is talking about in relation to this, this sense of the kingdom of God as something yet to come while already here in part now. And while the time allotted in this medium that we share this morning isn't going to allow us to, to look under every rock of Mark 13, Hopefully by showing you how I go through a chapter like this, it can model something for you so that when you read the Bible, you have somewhat of, of a template or maybe a, a little bit of guidance in how to go about thinking about what Jesus actually has to say. So whether you're doing it in a hard copy or following electronically, I invite you to go to Mark 13. And the first thing that I find that's always important to do 
is just read it. That seems like a no-brainer that doesn't even need to be stated. But so often, how, do we open, how often do we open something and start reading and get a sentence and already start wrestling with that sentence before situating it within a whole? So I like to read the entire section. Maybe it's an entire broken out section. Maybe it's a complete cross-section of a book. Maybe it's a chapter. But to read that section as a whole and then circle back around So I encourage you to follow along as I read Mark 13 today. Here's what it says. As he, Jesus, was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Jesus, tell us, when are these things going to happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming, I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of the birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and to father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut those short, short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect if that were possible. So be on your guard, 
I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the sun but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the other one at the door to keep watch. So keep watch. Because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone. Watch. Okay, we made it. Did you find your mind drifting through that? Did you find yourself at times? No, did you find yourself the whole time going, what is going on? Do you ever have this experience when you read the Bible? It's like, I have no idea what's going on. It's filled with imagery and symbols, and he's talking about things that he assumes that you know, and you're just kind of left in the dust, and and you're so hung up on one verse that by the time the reader or your reading takes you 10 verses later, you're already left in a dust plume. You are left behind, and you have no idea of what's going on. Welcome to the Bible. Welcome to the amazing, complex, frustrating, challenging, insightful, mesmerizing word of God that is meant to stir within us. And after I begin by reading a passage like Mark 13, what I find is so important to do is to go back again and start asking questions because, guys, the Bible is not meant to be read. It's meant to be reread over and over again. If you think you'll read something once and somehow capture the fullness of what God wants to say, you're selling its message short. And so what God invites us to do is to get into a conversation with him, to start asking things like, like what, what, what is this about? When is this happening? What's taking place? Why are they asking these questions? Why is Jesus asking me things like this? What is he trying to warn me of? What are abominations of desolations? And 
When will the sun be darkened? And if it's going to happen in those days, why isn't it darkened still? What is he getting at with keeping watch? Jesus, help, please. What is going on? It's a conversation. A conversation that I think is meant to continue to go on. Listening to what God has to say and conversing with him about what's taking place. Now, as I go through a passage like this, a number of questions start coming to mind for me. One, of all the things that Mark could have recorded, Jesus having said, why this? There are 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark, and it's given a full chapter of airtime to this. Maybe you're sitting there going, man, I would have really liked some more miracles, maybe some more parables. But something here is so important to Jesus, so important to Mark, recording the message of Jesus that he chose to give his space to this. I want to know why. It says in the beginning that it took place when they were leaving the temple. A question I start asking is, what were they doing at the temple? And I realized that since Mark chapter 11, Jesus has been at the temple, both challenging the temple and its establishment, overthrowing tables and throwing out money changers and talking about a judgment that was to come on it and then teaching in the temple as well. What is it about the temple that's so significant for Jesus, that's so important. And how does what Jesus is talking about here relate to it? Because that, after all, is the question that drives it. What did it say? As Jesus was sitting opposite the temple on the Mount of Olives, his disciples asked him privately, when are these things going to happen? What things? The stones of this temple torn down? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Let me ask you. As you heard this story or maybe followed along, aren't your minds rooted out in end times kind of things? We read about the sun being darkened. We read about stars falling out of the sky. We read about heavenly bodies being shaken. We read about calamities that just feel apocalyptic at the core. And don't you kind of walk away with an assumption that what Jesus is talking about here is at the end. But here's the kicker. Jesus comes out and explicitly says, and did you catch it? It's 13 verse 30. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Until all these things have happened, the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling from the sky? Does it seem like these things have happened to you? But Jesus says to those disciples in roughly 30 AD, this generation will not pass away. Their generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. And it leads me to say, I've got to take Jesus' words 
seriously. And if he meant what he said there, how does that start to challenge my assumptions of how I'm reading what he said? It starts to challenge that maybe this isn't so much about the end times at all, but something that happened in their generation Instead, maybe I'm so fixated on looking to the future that what Mark 13 is inviting me to do is look to the past. Because where we have to start with the Bible is what it said to them. We believe here at Fellowship of Faith that the Bible is a living, breathing message of God that speaks with such power and relevance and insight to us today. But before we know what it says to us today, we have to know what it said to them back then. Because only by understanding what its message was to them back then can we then start to extract what God is saying through these words to us today. And it's led me to remember something in challenging my assumptions that Jesus speaks big. You ever notice this? Jesus loves to speak big. Here's one example. I tell you, unless you hate your father, your mother, your sister and brother, your children and wife. Yes, unless you hate your own life, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. Has that one ever stung you? Has that one ever kind of left you going, what do I do with this? Jesus likes to talk big. How about this one? You have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the left. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. If someone asks for your tunic, give him your cloak as well. Give to the one who asks of you. Do not turn away. And you start working out the implications of this. And you know that there's something there that's powerful and radical and good. And yet it seems to be fraught with certain pitfalls. Jesus loves to talk big. Jesus will often use big language to talk about the importance and significance of an event that to you and me might seem ordinary. And in this message of the destruction of the temple, which we know from history happened in 70 AD in the generation or the lifetime of those disciples of Jesus. Jesus invests it with something. Jesus invests it with a significance that goes beyond what an ordinary person might be limited to see. The story of Mark 13 is not so much a blueprint of how the end time situation will play out before Jesus' second coming. No, Mark 13 is a picture of what Jesus has been doing throughout the gospel of Mark, certainly in the last chapters, calling down judgment on the institution of the temple. 
and how the things of God and people of God who should be standing for God have turned against God and have gone their own way instead in issuing a warning that God will hold it to account. And when he does, it'll be a dark day filled with suffering. The significance of it will be beyond what you and I can see. A significance filled with language that can only be described as the sun being darkened and the heavenly bodies being shaken. No, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, rooting in something other than him, finding their meaning and identity and their connection primarily in ways that may have gone astray of the way of God and Jesus warning them of the struggling and persecution they would have to face and the judgment that God would bring as he brings justice to all things as he comes again. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away until the destruction of this temple takes place. Okay, so it's gone. 70 AD, almost 2,000 years ago. Great, I got it. Thanks. What does it have to do with you and me? It's only by walking through the door of understanding what it says can we ever come to that question. What does it have to do with you and me? And let me offer a few observations I think we can take out of Mark 13. One, God's hand is in the ordinary. I think we tend to look at life as being neatly divided between the natural and the supernatural. That there are things that happen of their own accord, just as the natural mechanisms of nature, if you will. The cause and effect of human interaction, or what it may be. And then there's the supernatural, where God goes, oh, I'm going to do it differently. And he comes down to mess it up, or mix it up, or intervene. It strikes me, though, that this might not be Jesus' way of thinking. Jesus, I think, sees life differently with God's hand constantly in the ordinary. To someone who had witnessed the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, well, it would have looked just like that, a calamity. A calamity as a result of war. A cruelty and a hardship that people had to face, or the power and might of the Roman Empire, which was fully well known of the day. It might not seem like God's hand is in it, but Jesus says, make no mistake, God's hand is in the ordinary. The things that we see, the things that we experience, God sometimes uses them. God sometimes allows them. God sometimes orchestrates them for greater purposes, as vehicles, as mechanisms, as tools to bring his mercy his goodness, his justice. He invites us to look around and see that everything is spiritual. That the Spirit of God is living and active in this world. 
and often behind and in and with and under. Very ordinary, even if it's big, kind of things. Another observation. Did did it strike you how many times Jesus said, keep watch? Look at that last section again. Look at the conclusion of all this description, of all this sermonizing Jesus does. Where is he bringing it home? Look at what he says. Verse 28, learn the lesson of the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. There's signs all around you, he's saying, indicators of God's hand at work. This stuff is going to happen. It's going to happen in this generation. No one knows well when, so verse 33, be on guard, be alert, keep watch. Why does he say it? Because the reality is our tendency is not to be alert, to be on guard, or to keep watch. It's been 2,000 years. And isn't it easy to fall asleep at the wheel? Jesus invites us to live in a different way, with a certain sense of urgency and expectation, a certain sense of yearning and focus that what we do and how we live is for the glory of him and the betterment of his kingdom. He invites us to stay in the game, to be alert to what God is doing around him, because if we're not careful, we just might miss it. How often do we pray, God, where are you? How often do people think, God, where were you? And all the time, God is saying, I was all around you. If only you had eyes to see. Keep watch, Jesus says. I'm active in this world. I'm behind these things. I'm invested and involved. Stay alert so it doesn't pass you by unaware or catch you asleep at the wheel. Which leads me to observation number three. We're called to be active players in Jesus' quote, end time scenario. Understand I'm talking about all of life as we know it, not just some future date to come at the end. But it's not something that passively happens to me. You know, I think the way that we often approach Jesus' second coming is a lot like the way that we go to see a movie at a movie theater. Remember those days when you can go to a movie theater? You know, you go to AMC, you go to classic cinema, you get there about 10 minutes early. Well, not in my family, then it's two minutes late. But you get there 10 minutes early, right? You get there, and what do you do? You wait. For those of you of an older generation, remember before they were giving commercials, before the movie would begin, it was like ungodly painful. You would just have to sit there going, this is so boring, as you would wait for the movie to start. At least now they give us something to watch in the meantime, but the effect is the same. We see ourselves as passive recipients. I come to the theater. They'll put on the show for me, And I see where it takes me as it goes along. Don't you approach the coming of Jesus the second way? It's coming. 
It's coming soon, so I'll sit here and wait. I'll wait and passively let what happens take it along with me. But that is not what Jesus has to say. Did you catch these last words of Mark 13? Be on guard, be alert. You don't know when it'll come. Here's what it's like. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house. He puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Do you know who the man is in that scenario? Do you know who the servants are? I don't think it's a stretch if you think about it. To see this is an analogy of the way God is describing how he operates in this world today. That God has made this place and he's gone away. That's why we wait for his coming. And he puts his servants in charge, you and me. Not to passively wait, not to just kill time, but to get about the work of managing his house until his return. God takes this world and he puts it in your hands. And far more than waiting passively by, letting the world go into pot, going, well, the Lord's coming anyway and he'll fix it all. No, he says, I've trusted it to you. This echoes back to the beginning of Genesis, the the purpose statement of humanity to fill the earth, to subdue it, to rule it, to govern it as God would govern it, to be the presence and image of God in this place. God entrusts that to you. And as we wait for Christ to come again, God sees you as an active player, one who is meant to manage, orchestrate this world that he loves, this kingdom that he's bringing, giving you the value and importance of doing it in his stead. The questions They can just keep going on and on. What else does God have to say? What else is to be extracted? What else is to be discovered? Welcome to a relationship with God. Far more of a journey and conversation of continual discovery than of arriving at a place where you finally get him figured out. And our prayer for you who are listening today is that you seek to enter into that journey with God, that you open the conversation with him, listening to what he has to say, asking questions in response and seeing where God takes you with him.